0: Coming up, we look back on a nice, calm week with no Brexit-related chaos at all. Meanwhile, in the real world, welcome to Britain, President Stupid.
1: Donald Trump, I don't think, to be honest, cares a lot about the voices of the people. He will be pissed off when... People make sarcasm against him.
0: As officials desperately wonder how to stop the tiny-handed lunatic finding out what most Brits actually think of him. A
2: far-sighted uh, White House uh, aide might try to uh, sabotage the satellite dish connection to his room.
0: Paul Osborne here thank you for downloading the second podcast this week yes it has rather been that kind of week splits in the cabinet resignations talk even of treason And then footballing heartbreak. Now, just to top things off, Donald Trump's arrived. We'll focus on the Tangerine Terror a little later on. But first, you may be surprised that we've got to the end of the week with Theresa May still in number 10, particularly after the events of Monday. But questions still remain over how long she can cling on. What's not been clear is who could replace her. But the thing is, the answer has been staring us in the face for weeks gareth southgate he dresses better than every politician he speaks more sense than almost all of them and people actually like and trust him so this podcast endorses gareth southgate for prime minister i'm sure he'll be delighted Now, we're not a football podcast, so we won't dwell on events in Russia. Suffice to say that the one bright spark of hope that we'd all been clinging to has been extinguished, despite the best efforts of our remarkable players. So now it's England against Belgium, a matchup that nobody wanted and one that nobody really wins which seems an appropriate way to start talking about Brexit. Because if you're looking for a riveting weekend read, look no further than the Brexit white paper. It really is a page turner with its talk of principled, pragmatic, ambitious future relationships. Not all the reviews have been kind. Jacob Rees-Mogg, for example, says it's a bad deal for Britain. Well, Let's bring in Robert Meakin at this stage. Robert, I can't claim to have read the whole of the uh, white paper yet, but glancing through it, you can see why the brexiteers don't like it it talks about giving eu citizens preferred access to the uk to work suggests they may be able to claim benefits after brexit admits that some businesses are going to lose out and fundamentally it says that we won't get everything we want in this post-eu britain now given that the rallying cry of the brexiteers was that we could have everything we wanted and none of the things we didn't that's obviously going to be unpopular yes you, and you you see obviously uh, where, where where the objections the obvious
3: objections of Boris Johnson and David Davis lay this is not the promised land that uh those uh, battle-hardened Brexiteers were hoping for at all. Um, uh, But supporters of the Prime Minister will say this is pragmatic, this is realistic, this is how far we can really go if we want to continue any sort of workable, productive, profitable relationship with the EU. Uh, But the devil is going to be in the detail now. Well, it's hailed as being sensible on one level. Can she get this through the House of Commons. Can she get it past Michelle Barnier in Brussels? Both things are still very much up in the air.
0: Well, yeah, even if this is, you know, the softest Brexit that, that Theresa May thinks she can credibly offer to the Conservatives and the hardest Brexit that she thinks she can credibly offer to the EU, there is that small issue of the fact that fundamentally we still want a free market in the trade of goods, but we don't want the other three freedoms that the EU see those four as indivisible. And we are in this weird Shadow World, where the government publishes these plans as if we haven't just had two senior resignations or open warfare in the Tory party or activists screaming blue murder. Meanwhile, poor old Dominic Raab, who's been parachuted in as Brexit secretary and we presume is every bit as sceptical about this plan as David Davis was, has to try and sell something that he, you imagine, doesn't believe in either.
3: Yep, absolutely and he's had a fairly torrid start. He was at the dispatch box we had the farcical scene of actual copies of the of the government's brexit white paper being handed out during his speech they hadn't arrived beforehand so his speech had to be put on hold so an absolute chaos so it was they were near comical scenes for Dominic Roberts you say he's in a strange position really he was a brexiteer but he's come in really as somebody who's not going to rock the boat in the way that David Davis his predecessor did I mean cynics would say he's he's there really to be something of a yes man to the Prime Minister he's made it quite clear already that uh, He's there essentially to deputise, as he called it, when it comes to the Brexit negotiations behind the prime minister. So I think you've got someone there who isn't going to be the thorn in the prime minister's side that David Davis was. But of course, the prime minister's problems are coming at her from all manner of other
0: angles. We ought to reflect on just how bad Boris Johnson was as foreign secretary, because I think in the shock of his resignation in, in our last podcast, we talked about the political impact of him going. But we ought to just pause and just reflect on the fact that he was a dreadful foreign secretary. Remember, you know, back in the days before the Leave vote, we were being told that once he'd finished as London mayor, they'd have to give Boris a big job so that he could prove that he was up to the even bigger one of being prime minister. We can conclusively say that he failed that test. I mean, yeah, was he our worst ever foreign secretary? I imagine Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe's family would say yes. The British woman who's in a jail in Iran has sentence seems to get longer every time this self-centered half-wit said anything about her. Though, frankly, that wasn't terribly often. And also, who the hell commissions an official photograph of themselves signing their own resignation letter, trying and failing to look statesman's like? How pompous and self-important do you have to be to do that? I suppose the answer to that question Is you have to be Boris Johnson? Yes, I mean, from the outside, it looks like
3: staggering arrogance to be there to actually pose for a photo shoot, signing your own resignation letter. Boris inevitably feels that will be an important part of his memoirs in years to come. Looking back on why he became Foreign Secretary, my feeling was that Theresa May thought, well, A, I don't like Boris. B, I don't trust Boris, but C, Boris is going to be a real pain uh, to have on the back benches, causing all sorts of problems. People won- will be wondering, what if What if Boris was here? So what did she do? She passed him this ball of fire, which was, of course, becoming foreign secretary. And she said, all right, let's see what you can do here. Let's see if, if he proves to be a good foreign secretary. That's fairly useful to me in the short term. But if, if, if he causes trouble, if he has to go, then I can, then you know people will say, as we're saying now, well, surprise, surprise, Boris was in Capable of being statesmanlike incapable of being disciplined,
0: incapable of being loyal. You know, Lord Carrington died this week. He was Foreign Secretary when Argentina invaded the Falkland Islands, and he resigned on the spot. He didn't resign because it was his fault. He resigned because he felt that as Foreign Secretary, it was his responsibility, and that he therefore he could not remain in the job. Boris Johnson, meanwhile, resigns because he thinks it might turn out to be in his own best interests. That tells you about the gulf, if you're talking about, you know, who counts as a statesman, just the motivations behind those two resignations. Also, by the way, the claim at the centre of his incredible self-serving resignation letter about how EU law prevented him when he was mayor of London acting on improving safety for cyclists is not true. It's absolute rubbish. It's factually inaccurate. It's gibberish. So at least he left in much the same manner as he arrived. I think anyone who's followed Boris Johnson's career
3: over the years uh, won't be surprised that he may have been a little murky stroke dishonest on certain details. Going right back to his days as a journalist covering Brussels many moons ago, he was notorious for making up all manner of apocryphal stories that could cause all manner of embarrassment uh, to the government at the time. Boris Johnson isn't the sort of person who thinks, OK, now I'll just head off into the sunset and uh, adopt a low profile. No, I mean, I think I'd imagine, while Boris probably knows right now if he came back in, if he tried to pull down Theresa May, that simply wouldn't work. He would, he would, he he could be humiliated. Further down the line, I don't rule out the possibility that you know, if Theresa May's negotiations fall apart, if Michel Barnier proves impossible to deal with, if we're at that rather ominous state of affairs where it's no Brexit deal, I wonder then whether Boris thinks here you know, with Turchillian cigar in mouth that that's my moment, that's my moment to come forward and arrive in my chariot as the nation's saviour.
0: I wonder if that's that's really his thought process slightly further down the line. I think that's probably his thought process most days, actually. I think it's probably the first thing he thinks about when he wakes up. (laughs) And and, and certainly, if you look at, say, the letters page of the the Telegraph, sort of the grassroots Tories are in open revolt here. Um, It will be interesting to see how Tory MPs react once they've spent the weekend in their constituencies with those furious activists. And of course, Boris, you know, is a a loyal and regular contributor to the Telegraph. While we're on the subject of the Daily Telegraph, by the way, well done to whichever imbecile decided to write a tweet that suggested that the Prime Minister was guilty of treason. Very calm and in no way reminiscent of the kind of hate-filled gibberish that was screamed by the lunatic who murdered an MP, you know two years ago. The Daily Telegraph's always been the House Journal of the Conservative Party. It seems to be becoming the House Journal of the Criminally Insane.
3: Yeah, as as a former Daily Telegraph journalist myself, I have to say it is a rather depressing state of affairs when you see such a respected newspaper, whatever side of the political debate you come from, resorting to such hysterical, unnecessary and irresponsible language. We've seen it, obviously, in other newspapers. Plenty of newspapers have been guilty of such lunacy in recent times.
0: But as I say, it's very, very depressing. And yet, after all that's happened in the last few days, Theresa May addresses backbench Tories hours after losing her Brexit and foreign secretaries and gets a round of applause from a good number of them and then straight after there MP saying no 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 there's no question of a leadership challenge. Now why is that? It's not because the Tories love Theresa May it's because they haven't finished using her as a human shield. She may be even more beleaguered than she was a week ago she may be even more unpopular than she was a week ago with a large section of her own party's base but not one of her rivals wants that job right now. They want her to stay there and soak up the fury and the abuse and then once we've actually left the EU next year, they will chuck her under a bus. And even then, whoever takes over will spend the next five years blaming her for every single problem the Conservative Party encounters. Yeah, and let's not feel too much sympathy for Theresa May, because
3: if we just just rewind a little and remember her conduct during the referendum itself. Now, I know David Cameron comes in for a hell of a lot of flack for the person who called that referendum in the first place. But Theresa May was ambiguous at best in terms of her loyalties. While officially a Remainer. She was a Remainer with a very small R, if not an invisible one. She was known as Submarine May during the referendum campaign. She was very, very, very calculated in her decision not to really show her colours during that, just in case things backfired for then Prime Minister Cameron and she could politically profit from it and go into Downing Street. So she wanted this job. She wanted this awful job at this time and unsurprisingly
0: it will it will prove the undoing of her at some point probably not too far down the line and yet after all this youGov asked people this week who they thought would make the best prime minister and theresa may still beat jeremy corbyn by (laughs) seven points that has got to be a worry for labour if you can't sneak ahead on leadership this week you frankly never will Now, as if Theresa May doesn't have enough on her plate, now she has to cope with the tantrum-throwing toddler who's in charge of the United States. Donald Trump is here, visiting a country he says is in turmoil, taking tea with the Queen, doubtless fitting in a few rounds of golf in Scotland and trying to avoid the protesters who want to make clear exactly how welcome he actually is. We'll be hearing from one of those protesters in just a moment. They've caused quite a headache for a British government desperate for a crisis-free Trump visit. But how important is this visit and indeed the supposed special relationship to America? And that's a question I asked Malcolm Brown, a British journalist who has lived and worked in the States for the last 20 years.
2: At one point, the White House, in their perfect dream scenario, this was going to be a trip where he went down the, the Mall in a carriage with the Queen, there were going to be guards trooping the colour kind of stuff, and they were excited about that. Well, think President Trump was clearly excited about that prospect. Then it became more apparent over time that that really wasn't on the cards, uh, and that was there was the prospect of mass protests, an increasing prospect of mass protests, White House enthusiasm wanes substantially. And I think advisors are pretty concerned about the way this thing could end up shaking out. Upside, it could go reasonably well. There could be nice pictures with the Queen. Obviously, if there is mass protest and that gets onto TV, the president starts to notice that because that's really his window on the world. And if he started tweeting about
0: that, that's a a pretty bad downside risk. Donald Trump is someone for whom that sort of stuff matters, doesn't it? The gilded carriage and the meeting the Queen and the being fated everywhere he goes. It matters. So similarly, he turns on the TV and he gets the impression that people in Britain don't want him there and don't like him, that is the kind of thing that could trigger some kind of tweet storm. Right. And it, it sits with him. And we
2: know that he likes that kind of treatment, uh, not because we guess it from his personality, but because when he went to China last year, he's had very warm things to say about China. He's about that visit in particular. He's had He's been at odds with China and trade and other topics. But when it came to the, the, the matter of the visit, the state visit, huge pageantry, pomp and ceremony, president trump spoke very warmly about that visit afterwards Uh, and so we know he does like that stuff and it doesn't seem to be what's in the offing here
0: how much does america actually think of britain we we like to think of the special relationship and how we have this enduring bond with the united states but you always get the feeling that in the u.s it's not really that special anyway it's special when
2: uh, the president can phone up the serving british prime minister and pull them into a coalition which they might not otherwise have joined to, you know, to take action around the world. And then there's this feeling of unity. That said, there's been incredibly warm feelings uh, towards uh, the UK, which did come out, for instance, during the recent royal wedding. And that was blanket coverage on American television. Network anchors were sort of giddy with excitement, standing by the side of the road, watching the royal carriage go past. Incredibly positive coverage in the US. Now, that may not be helpful for this visit because it may provide a rather stark visual contrast for what will happen when President Trump comes here.
0: How likely do you think it is that we'll get through this visit without him unleashing some sort of fury on Twitter early one morning? It's not going to be
2: helpful for the British government's perspective at all to have uh, their purported closest ally saying anything negative about them at a very sensitive time and at a time when, as a practical matter, the, the UK really needs a massive trading partner like the US as the global trading arrangements seem to be getting adjusted in large part because of the actions of the White House and also being forced on Britain by uh, the Brexit issue. So the British government will try very hard, but you know, everybody wakes up in the morning at sort of between five, six, seven o'clock to wait to see what President Trump has said. And that's an unpredictable thing and often seems to be guided by what he's seen on television a very short while before. So I guess a far-sighted uh, White House uh, aide might try to uh, sabotage the satellite dish connection to
0: his room or something like that. You've been in DC for a long time. What is that like as a reporter trying to cover what's going on getting up at five in the morning and waiting to see what he says. Yeah, he's sort of blown apart the convention standard
2: practice of, of releasing information from the White House. He gets up in the morning, seems to watch Fox and Friends on Fox News Channel, will respond to something he's seen there or something that somebody's told him. He spends a lot of time reaching out uh, informally to friends and other advisors outside the Washington bubble. Uh, and they may say, put something in his ear that sets him off, seemingly. So it is a very unusual uh, situation where he is very much his own as he sees it, best press advisor and uh, the last last decision-maker on any matter as it relates to releasing things to the press. So he's upended the whole system, basically.
0: Malcolm Brown, who's a journalist for the Feature Story News Agency. Uh, Robert, presumably some sort of tweet storm is inevitable because presumably at some stage he's going to turn on Fox News. He's going to see someone like Katie Hopkins or Nigel Farage on there telling him how awful these protests are. He's going to see that blimp and then his tiny little hands are going to reach for his phone farage by the way has already said the blimp's the biggest insult ever to a sitting u.s president ignoring the four presidents who were assassinated in office and the six who had uh, attempts on their lives so i mean you know the the surprise there obviously that Nigel farage was unable to get his facts straight but our likelihood of lasting until trump flies off to meet putin without some sort of outburst it's just not going to happen No,
3: anyone who obviously follows Trump, has the misfortune to follow his online antics on a daily basis, knows it's a near certainty that he will lash out on Twitter. That's the nature of the beast. I know we discussed it last week, the inflatable blimp and all the rest of it. It's entertaining and it's titillating now. Does it have much relevance in the scheme of things going forward? Not. Now, I don't mean to di- just you know, dismiss the inevitable protests that are going to go on across the country in the coming days. But how effective will it really be? Yes, it might annoy Trump. In the, in the short to medium term, but we know that man's attention span. We both know that within a couple of weeks, we'll almost be forgotten. We'll be talking about something altogether different when it comes to uh, the president. We'll really be talking about, you know, an inflatable blimp being hovering over the House of Commons or, or protests in London when Trump is standing for re-election and possibly winning a second term. They're the things for me that are the real concern. I, I respect people's right... To protest, I rather enjoy anything that gets under the president's skin. But really, I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that a he's won that U.S. election, however much it sticks in people's craw. And b right now, do the Democratic Party, his opponents in America, have someone to beat him next time? As of now, that knight in shining armor hasn't come over the hill. So I I, I think we just have to keep this in context of. uh, that this is short-term stuff, us, us giving the president
0: uh, a rough reception here. I don't think he'll be overly bothered. Lord knows I understand the appeal of telling Donald Trump to sod off. off. Yeah. But as you say, it, yeah, it makes them feel better, but I'm not sure that it necessarily achieves anything else. That hasn't stopped, however. Tens of thousands of people saying that they plan to take part in some of these protests. It's coordinated by uh, what's called the Stop Trump coalition. And earlier I spoke to Mohammed Atik, who's a Syrian refugee who lives in Britain and is part of that group.
1: We're just practicing our democracy and our freedom of speech to say that we will not let him use this trip to normalize the policies that he's spreading, whether like, you know, bigotry, hatred, the sentiment against immigrants and refugees. He doesn't represent only himself. He's, by the end of the day, he's the most powerful man on planet. He's the president of the US and his words really count. And the rise of the right w- um, movement, I think, in the West is pretty much connected with Trump and with his policies, we will confront the racism, the bigotry and the misogyny uh, that he represents.
0: Uh, Just before Donald Trump got on the plane to come to the UK, he said that British people liked him a lot, judging by the number of people you say are going to be on these protests. That's not true.
1: No, absolutely. It's not the case. Uh, We all know that actually uh, Trump has been avoiding visiting the UK because he always have this ego about himself and he doesn't want to be confronted with protests.
0: Lots of campaigners in the United States have tried and tried and tried to protest against all sorts of policies that Donald Trump has imposed in the last 18 months and they've had virtually no impact on him, presumably you're not going to be any more successful.
1: Well, it might change. We're not very sure about whether it changes or not. But what we're very sure that we have a duty to do, breaking the silence about the normalization of these policies in the West, where democracy and freedom of speech and the human rights should be really preserved. We are protesting also to stop the government here, making us the puppet of Trump's America. So it's, it's both a message to Trump and actually to the British government as well.
0: Given the importance of Britain's relationship with the US, given Brexit and the need to build trade deals, I mean, it was never really possible, was it, for Theresa May to cancel this invite? She was always going to have to roll out
1: the red carpet. The UK boosting about democracy, boosting about the human rights, but then when it comes to trade deals that we are risking everything to build this relationship. And also like, you know, by the end of the day, Donald Trump. I don't think he he will ever think about the other people's interest. He will think like you know about the U.S. interest purely. I don't know if he's actually a credible man or that we should trust him when it comes to trade. A lot of
0: attention before the visit paid to that Trump baby blimp, that giant inflatable Donald Trump in a in a nappy. And it's very funny, but given all the serious things you're concerned about, does it help or harm your cause?
1: Donald Trump, I don't think, to be honest, cares a lot about the voices of the people. He doesn't care what we want. I don't think like, you know, he will care about what a Syrian refugee in the UK will say. However, I'm very sure that he he will be pissed off when people make sarcasm against him. And I think that's that's a very good way to attract his attention.
0: Well, that's Mohammed Atik from the Stop Trump Coalition. We saw from Donald Trump's behaviour at the NATO summit, Robert, that he doesn't understand diplomacy, but he also doesn't care. You know, he accused Germany of being in Russia's pocket. This is a bit rich coming from comrade Trump, who's obviously looking forward to meeting Putin again more than anything else he's doing while he's in Europe. It it, it seems that, as we heard a few minutes ago from Malcolm Brown, the best case scenario is to get through the visit without a major diplomatic incident the best case scenario for that is probably to disconnect his telly and his phone yeah and we have to remember what what's trump's priority here it's what the
3: response is back home in the united states now as ever i think we always get uh, sort of our information our anti-trump uh, stuff really from you know, whether it be los angeles or new york from liberal media types and celebrities we hear how terrible and embarrassed they are of their president ah those damn liberal media types <laughs> oh yeah exactly i can't stand those liberal media types <laughs> Terrible people. That huge, that huge chunk in the middle. They're the people in the United States who Trump is playing to on this trip. He doesn't care what the British think or the Germans think. They will enjoy seeing Trump going for the jugular, telling the Germans you're in the pocket of the Russians. In a bar in the Midwest of America, that'll go down pretty well. That's where his power base is. That's what his concern is. So he'll come over here and he'll play it rough. He might tickle us under the chin a bit when he cut when he's here now and might sort of suggest we've got some sort of special relationship. if if he's in the mood, albeit briefly. But overall, he's playing to
0: a completely different audience and we should not lose sight of that. Well, he might not care what we think. We clearly care a lot what he thinks. And a great deal of thought has gone into this musical soundtrack to the dinner that Trump is having with Theresa May. An orchestra will be playing a carefully chosen selection of classic hits, including songs by Elvis Presley and Barry White. There'll be Frank Sinatra's My Way. I mean, surely we can come up with some more appropriate songs than this. I know there's this online campaign to get uh, Green Day's American Idiot to number one. But, but that's the kind of thing you want. We want someone to sneak in something like that, don't we? What was that Rage Against the Machine song they played that was, that was a hit? A, it was out against the X Factor a few years ago. We want something like that to just be quietly struck up by the band, don't we? That's, that's typically British. Well, he, f- he famously
3: likes playing the Rolling Stones, so Sympathy for the Devil might be a reasonably apt one, you could argue. Oh, that's a good choice.
0: That's a very yeah, good choice. See, see, see my thinking. The only ones I could come up with were just really angry songs. Like, what's that one where someone <laughs> just screams, I hate you so much? over and over again. <laughs> That's
3: subtle lyrical content. You're clearly a more reasonable man than I am. I've just got more
0: dated rock tastes, really. That's the truth of well, it. Well, that as well. But as <laughs> the band strikes up some simple-minded patriotic songs to soothe the colossal ego of our simple-minded visitor we'll leave it there for now if you missed our emergency podcast by the way on the brexit resignations it's just below this episode on our feed there's a full archive at partygamespodcast.com and you can always get in touch with us on twitter facebook or instagram by searching for party games pod thanks to guests markham brown and mohammed atik to robert as well and of course to you for listening until next time goodbye